2 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you're a visitor this morning, I would encourage you, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's totally fine. We have blue Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. And you can turn to page 1232. And you would be really well served to just open the Bible to 2 Corinthians 11 and leave it open in your lap. Because anything I have to say this morning only has value in as much as it reflects the reality that we see here in the Word of God. Well, if you're familiar with uh, the Bible at all, one of the most basic things that we know about the Bible is it has two Testaments. It's got an Old Testament and a New Testament. And maybe you've heard uh, a sermon or you've read somewhere, you've seen a little soundbite or a snippet, or just even talked with someone who's held this perspective that they kind of pit the Old Testament against the New Testament. Um, They'll say something like, the God of the Old Testament is angry and judgmental and wrathful, and the God of the New Testament is loving, peaceful, and forgiving. I'm sure that many of us have heard that before. And when people say that, what it shows me is that it's very obvious that they haven't spent very much time reading the Bible itself. Especially not reading the Old Testament. Because what's different in the Old Testament versus the New Testament is not God. God is the same in the Old and New Testament. What's different in the Old versus the New Testament is the people. That's where the difference lies. Not in the Lord of the Bible. The people. There's something different about them in the Old and the New Testament. You see, the Old Testament, God saves His people. They're enslaved in Egypt. You guys know the story? God washes them. He brings them through the Red Sea. He brings them to the mountain. And then he makes a covenant with them. He takes a kind of marriage vows with the people. Will you have this people to be your lawfully wedded people? God says, I will. Will you have this Lord to be your lawfully lawfully wedded Lord? The people say, we will. Ezekiel 16, I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. That's what happened there in the wilderness. But before the wedding ceremony had begun, God's people were already committing adultery at the bottom of Mount Sinai. If you remember the story there, Moses and God are still, the ink is still wet on the marriage certificate. Moses is still on the mountain, finalizing the documents with the Lord. And the people are down in the valley worshiping a golden calf. You see, the Old Testament is a record of infidelity after infidelity on the part of the people of God over and over again. The prophet Jeremiah said it got so bad that the people were committing adultery with every stone and tree. The people's unfaithfulness just kept spinning out of control. The prophets would even compare them to a harlot who sells herself, who pays her lovers to abuse her. That's what the relationship was like between the people and their Lord. The people were so eager to break their marriage vows with the Lord. That's the people of God in the Old Testament. 
Now, the New Testament, something changes. It's not God. It's us. He gives his life in order to ransom us out of slavery to sin and death. What did Jesus say at the Lord's Supper? This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Jesus signs the marriage certificate between himself and his church with his own blood. Paul told us back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that Paul says, I am now a minister of this new covenant. So something has changed for the people of God. In the Old Testament, page after page, we find unfaithfulness on the part of the people. And so the question is, in the New Testament, as we turn the pages of the people of God, should we, can we expect to find something different? It seems that Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, expects to find faithfulness from the church. What if we recognized every temptation to sin against the Lord Jesus as a temptation to pursue adultery? Will the bride of Christ be different from the bride in the Old Testament? That's the question that we're confronted with this morning as the church of God. Well, if you've turned to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let's stand together and exult and glorify God in the truths we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul writes, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I didn't burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasting that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds.
Amen. You may be seated. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul begins his most barbed, his most pointed, his most direct attack on these false, super, so-called super apostles by first reminding them what is at stake. I feel a jealousy. I feel the jealousy of God for you, Paul says. The jealousy that a husband has for his wife. Do you not realize, church, that a marriage is at stake? Your marriage to the Lord. You see, fidelity to Christ is not some peripheral issue. As long as the church is growing, as long as everyone is happy, as long as we have good numbers on Sunday, as long as the financials are all in order and growing, as long as the culture likes us, as long as we have politicians who will give us their ear, as long as we're winning, as long as Christians are all over pop culture and ESPN and HGTV, as long as we're building new buildings, does it really matter if we're 100% devoted to Jesus Christ? It's okay if we let a few things come in on the side. You know, just like the Israelites in the Old Testament, God was never bothered when they brought a few idols into the temple, was he? And this makes sense, married folks in the room, right? Because we all have open marriages, don't we? When we signed that marriage certificate, we understood it. It meant, you know, you can have a few people on the side. It's okay. Free love. If we all chuckle and know that that's absolutely wrong in our own marriage, why on earth would we think that that would be in any way tolerable in the marriage between Jesus Christ and His church? I betrothed you to one man, Paul says. Not two, not three, not fifteen. One husband. Paul writes in verse 3, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That word there, sincere, Paul used earlier in his letter, and it has the idea of singularity. Singularity. There is only one Christ. The thing about marriage is that there isn't a sliding scale of fidelity. More or less faithful to your spouse. The moment that even one person is allowed into that relationship, you've given up the whole game. Either you are faithful or you're not. It doesn't matter whether you're unfaithful with only one other person or 30 other people. Unfaithfulness is unfaithfulness. The moment there is another 
person or party involved. Paul says, do you realize what we're dealing with here? A marriage is at stake. Your marriage, church, with your Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul makes three very bold assertions to combat any temptation we might have to be unfaithful to the Lord Jesus. Number one, there is no other. There is no other. Number two, there is a scandal. The gospel brings a scandal into the lives of sinners. And number three, there are masqueraders. So let's look at each of Paul's points here this morning. Number one, there is no other. Paul speaks sarcastically uh, when he refers to the church in verse four. He says, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Paul says, It is the deception of the serpent himself for you to even entertain the thought that there is another Christ, another spirit, or another gospel. There is no other, Paul says. There is no other Christ. There is no other spirit. And there is no other gospel. You see, say, Satan is really clever. When he came to Eve in the garden, he didn't come to Eve and say, you shouldn't eat of the tree of life. He just starts a conversation that just so happens to leave out the only tree that is important in the garden and turn their attention to all the other trees that are there. What he does is convince Eve to eat of just, just, just one other tree. Just one other tree in addition to the tree of life. You can still eat from that tree. Let's not talk about that one. Let's talk about just one other tree. That's all Satan has to do. All he has to do is convince us that we can eat of the tree of life, Jesus Christ, and just one other tree as well. A tree that looks almost the same and offers some promises that sound vaguely familiar to the ones that that first tree offers as well. You see, when Satan tempts the people of God, he rarely presents us with something that's just blatantly, obviously sinful. It comes to us in the form of another. It's just another. It's just another way of understanding Christ. And it's amazing how these other Christs seem to be perfectly tailored to our tastes and our personal interests. comes to us and says, you know, why don't you have a little taste of the, the Republican Jesus? Why don't you have a little taste of the Democrat Jesus? Why don't you come and see how nice the fruit is on the white middle class Jesus? See how much more enlightened the sage Jesus is? Don't you want to sit with him for a little while? What about the forgiving Jesus who would never confront you about sleeping with your boyfriend? Doesn't that Jesus sound pretty good to you right now? Here, have a taste. The problem is, Paul says, there is no other Christ. 
Satan tells us we can bend and contort and hammer Jesus into whatever shape we want. We can chip away and we can chisel off the parts of the Son of God that the culture doesn't like. We can sand off and smooth the rough places of Jesus Christ that rub our sins the wrong way. The problem is that when you get involved with making another Christ, what you end up with is not Christ, but an idol. And if that's what you're into, don't worry. There is plenty of wood and stone and metal to go around, but you cannot call it Christ. There is no other Christ than the one that we find in the pages of Scripture who hung on a tree, who suffered and bled and died in our place. There is no other spirit than the one that Jesus Christ gives to us that calls us to complete obedience following in the footsteps of Jesus. And that week after week exhorts us to be unified with the body of Christ. There is no other gospel than the good news promised in the Old Testament, revealed in the person of Jesus in the Gospels, preached over and over again by the apostles in the book of Acts, confirmed and protected in the epistles, and consummated in the book of Revelation. There is no other. There is no other gospel than the death and resurrection of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who believe. Paul says, there is no other. Secondly, let's talk about the scandal. Because there's a scandal. There's a scandal in Corinth over the ministry of Paul. And the church is scandalized by three primary things when it comes to their marriage with Christ. And Paul pushing against them. There is a scandal because, number one, they're scandalized by his speech. Look at verse 5 with me. Chapter 11, verse 5. Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speech. I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. You see, what happened in Corinth was... Paul, being the missionary that he was, had spent a year and a half in Corinth, which was long for Paul's standards. He stays, he trains them, he has to move on. Well, after Paul leaves, some self-proclaimed super-apostles. Can you just picture these guys rolling into church? You know, this, who even calls themselves that? Right? Super-apostles rolling into church. They're wowing people with their rhetoric and their big words, and their smart wisdom, and their funny, witty stories. And they are so good at emotional development and drawing people in. They start to say to themselves, Paul is an idiot compared to these guys. There is a scandal. Paul, you're not as smart as these other guys. To which Paul responds, I'm sorry if my sermons were too plain for you. I could have sworn that, you know, you were baby Christians and you just came into the faith when I rolled into town. And I'm sorry that I tried to, you know, take my knife and fork and cut it up into tiny pieces so that you wouldn't be wowed by how much knowledge I had, but so that I could impart to you this knowledge so that you could become my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm sorry. 
And I humbled myself to doing that for you. The prophet Isaiah promised that at the dawning of the gospel, every valley should be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, that the uneven ground would be made level and the rough paces plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Do you realize the preaching of the gospel has to be done with words and speech that make that happen? That lower the valleys, or that raise up the valleys and lower down the mountains. When a preacher uses big words and puts on air and, and tries to throw around his theological heft and scholarly knowledge and introduces fussy content in order so that people can see how big of a brain he has, his big head gets in the way of the all flesh seeing and beholding the glory of God in the gospel. All flesh shall see it together, the prophet says. So beware. Beware of the super apostles who would love to insert all kinds of scholarly knowledge and wisdom into their, into their sermons so that people can be wowed and impressed by how smart they are. Paul says, I would rather be deemed an idiot for the simplicity of my preaching than to be thought a scholar and risk getting in the way of the gospel. They were scandalized by his speech. Well, but Paul, you're not as funny as these other guys. And there are preachers out there who could do a stand-up comedy tour. I know there are. There are some preachers you listen to, and they're hilarious. They have just the perfect comedic timing. They're great storytellers. They've got great jokes. They've got a quick wit. But those men and women need to be careful lest they pack out arenas filled with people laughing and guffawing and knee-slapping their way right through the wide gate which leads to destruction because they never learned to take their sin seriously. They were never confronted with the blunt, unadulterated truth that their sin is an offense to a righteous and holy judge, the eternal God. They were scandalized by his speech. But Paul, you're not as good on, at tugging on our heartstrings as these other guys do. I bet there are preachers out there who are gifted enough at emotional manipulation that they could make me cry about the death of a palmetto bug. And that would take a lot of work. But there are some guys out there who could probably do it. And they better be careful lest they use their powers of emotional persuasion to create emotional experiences that are completely devoid of the Spirit. There's a scandal. But it wasn't that the people were just scandalized by Paul's speech. They were scandalized by grace. Listen to verse 7. Or did I commit a sin... And humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. Are you scandalized by the fact that I brought the gospel to you as a complete and utter free gift to you? Scandalized by grace. And then Paul makes it even worse because he tells them what was actually happening behind the scenes. 
to spare their pride. He hadn't told them this. But listen, he says, it's even worse than you think. Not only was I preaching you free of charge, but I was actually looting the poor Macedonian church that whole time. Taking their money from the poor widows and orphans in Macedonia so that I could preach the gospel to you rich folks here in Corinth. How do you think that made the rich, gifted, affluent, overflowing Corinthians feel? To have broken, feeble, humble, meek, gentle Paul come into their midst and tell them, I have something to offer you that not all of your wealth and money and, and, and fame and influence could ever buy. And guess what? A bunch of poor people in a neighboring town scrimped and saved and put money together so that I could bring this free gift to you. Scandalized by grace. The Corinthians wanted to come to God with something in their hands. They wanted a gospel that they could barter with God for. It's respectable to pay for what you get. It's humiliating to receive something that costs the Son of God His very lifeblood. And that's why the super apostles were a perfect fit for a church like Corinth. Because the super apostles wanted to be paid handsomely for their ministry and the Corinthians liked the gospel that they got to pay for. This is the great scandal of grace that the Corinthians could not come to terms with and it's this. God does not need you. God does not need you. Until we get our heads wrapped around that, you and I will never receive the gospel. Because the gospel is grace. It's not earned. It's not what God is obligated to give you. It's undeserved, unmerited, and unnecessary outpouring of love toward loveless, rebellious, sinful, disobedient creatures who were fashioned from dust and deserve to return to that dust forever. Any righteousness you may think you can offer to God, it's dirt. Any money, any possessions, any time, any service that you think is somehow of benefit and that God needs from you, it is dirt. Any abstaining from sin, any good works, any church attendance, it is dirt. You have nothing to offer to God. But He has everything to offer to you in the person of Jesus Christ, whom we receive by grace through faith. You know what faith is? Faith is the upward stretched hands, empty hands of a beggar. It's the very thing the Corinthians didn't want to do. <coughs> Beggars' hands. If you're too proud to receive the scandalous grace of God, you will never be saved. Because you have to come to terms with the truth that God does not need you. And as much as you would like to pay for the gospel, to repay God, to dignify yourself in the presence of God, the moment that you try to pay for the gospel, whether with your money or your time or your good works, you lose it. We may not try to pay for the gospel with actual money like the Corinthians were. We do it in so many other ways. We tell ourselves that God's happier with us 
because we've read our Bible every day this week, or we, we've been so faithful this month to give to the church, or we've been at church every day, for, every week for the past two months, God must be so pleased with me. We tell ourselves that we deserve God's favor because we're better than other people and we sin less, or whatever we tell ourselves. It is a great scandal to self-centered, proud, arrogant human beings like you and me to have to say the truth. God doesn't need me. But this is the further scandal that although God doesn't need you, God wants you. God wants you. The people were scandalized by Paul's speech. They were scandalized by grace. But do you know what? They were also scandalized by love. Why would Paul come all the way to Achaia? Why would he risk Life and limb. Why would he loot the Macedonians? Why would he work tirelessly for a year and a half, preaching by day, making tents by night? Why would a mountain like Paul say he was willing to stoop so low so that he may raise up the valley of sinners in Corinth? Look at verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the region of Achaia. And what is he boasting about? And why? Because I do not love you. God only knows how much I do. Scandalized by love. Friends, there is a scandal. A scandalous love of Jesus Christ who would stoop so low as to die on a cross in the place of sinful people like you and me. The scandalous love of the spotless Son of God who would love a harlot like the church. The scandalous love of a Savior who would find us filthy, dead in our sins and would wash us clean with His blood and bring us back to life with His own Spirit so that we can live and rejoice and exult and glory in Him as we read about in Revelation 19 this morning. Do not resist His grace. Do not scorn or be scandalized by His love. There is a scandal. And it's this, that even though you're a sinner, Christ died for you. And in this, we see the love of God. Repent and believe. Well, there is no other. And there is a scandal afoot. Finally, Paul warns us that there are masqueraders Paul, in verse 13, finally takes these men and he pulls the mask right off their faces and shows us the absolute truth about who they're serving. Verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness and their end will correspond to their deeds. Our third and final point this morning is very simple. There are masqueraders. The, sa- the serpent is still active and alive and he is seeking to woo your heart away from Jesus, church. Can you not see it? He whispers in your ears through these imposters, through popular, prominent, well-spoken, hilarious, smart, scholarly preachers who say, Did God really say? 
men and women who want to reinterpret the gospel in a thousand different ways. Men and women who will try to convince you that Jesus and His church can have an open marriage and it will be just fine. You can belong to Jesus and still play around with other idols. You can get in bed with money or fame or celebrity or power, church. Go on some dates with some political power and have an occasional one night stand and it will be just fine. Jesus is very forgiving, don't you know? He'll welcome you back. No problem. And then they will sugarcoat this doo-doo with some kind of gospelly sounding thing like, it's all grace, right? God is a forgiving God. There's no, you don't need to really understand the word. It's just all grace and love. Friends, we need to recognize this for what it is. Satan is out to destroy the church and he has ministers, preachers of every other gospel other than the one true gospel. He doesn't care which gospel you buy into just so long as it's an other one. They don't come carrying the satanic Bible and encouraging us to worship Satan. In fact, a lot of times they come carrying the Bible. They come, Paul says, wearing a mask, looking just like every other gospel preacher you've heard in your life. They preach a slightly different gospel. They alter it just a bit. And what they lose in gospel, Paul says, they more than make up for in boasting. I mean, really, do you want the gospel of a poor tent maker or the gospel of a professional speaker who's able to fly across the globe in his own private jet? Do you want the Christ proclaimed by a notorious prisoner of the state or the other Christ proclaimed by a well-respected, well-dressed pillar of society? You want the spirit that you have to share with a humble idiot like Paul. Or do you want to share a spirit with a mighty, mighty host of super apostles? There are masqueraders. Servants of Satan who intentionally, knowingly, purposefully don the mask of righteousness in order to woo the church away from worshiping Jesus Christ to fellowship in any other spirit, to believe any other gospel. Satan does not care what tree we eat from so long as we don't eat of the tree of life. Brothers and sisters, we ought to know this. Jesus and His church do not have an open marriage, no matter what any preacher may tell you. It's either all Jesus or nothing. It's either complete fidelity to Him or infidelity. Two lovers or two hundred lovers. A church who gives herself to anyone other than the one man, her one husband, Jesus Christ, has fallen into the deceit of Satan. That is as old as Genesis 3, the beginning of time. So let us guard jealously our affections for the Lord Jesus Christ, our only husband. Let us proclaim to one another that there is no other. Let us not be repulsed by the scandal of the gospel speech, by the scandal of the grace of God, by the scandal of His love. And let us watch out together, for there are masqueraders 
They're everywhere. Satan would love nothing more than to turn the New Testament people of God back into the Old Testament people of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that we can only be faithful to you in so much as you keep us. You're our shepherd. It's your love that has drawn us to yourself. And so we pray that your love would keep us on the straight and narrow. We pray that we would not be drawn away after others. We pray that we would not be scandalized by the beauty of the gospel. Help us, protect us, God, we ask, from anyone who would wear the mask of righteousness to draw us away into unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, we're trusting and leaning on you. Care for us as your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.